everybody. Uh, my name is Joseph Ray. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ Community, and I'll be leading us in our time in the Word together. So pray with me if you would. Jesus, we have sent some incredible truths about who you are, about what you have made true of us, and about what you have said to every person who believes in you, every person who belongs to you by faith and quits living as master of their own life and hands that control over to you. We have differences from one another. We may have significant differences from one another, but you have welcomed everyone who comes to you in faith. And I pray that we learn as we need to learn to do the same. And so I pray that you would show us that today, help us see what it means to live at peace in a world that is incredibly polarized, um, even when we have significant disagreements with one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day, we were giving updates on just various things in our church, kind of how different things are going. And one of our leaders mentioned a woman that he spoke with recently uh, he didn't share her name or any particular details, but she mentioned some disagreement she was having with a Bible study group she was in over kind of cultural or political issues. And so he asked, us, he asked her about it a little bit further, and she got to a point where she said, actually, I can't tell you anymore because they quit speaking to me. She says they quit speaking to her, this Bible study group, over a political or cultural disagreement. Now, I wish I could say that that was a, a sad but isolated incident, but something has happened in the last five years, in the last year in particular, it seems like in our country, where we, we're just exploding in polarized conflict everywhere. So everything is a flashpoint. Every conflict is ratcheted up to 11. And then every word or phrase or post or even like who you, know, you, you admit that you get your news from becomes grounds, becomes a sign of whether you're my ally or you're my enemy. And so it's not, uh, you know, we talk in these slogans that show tribal allegiance instead of thought. So abolish the police or back the blue. Black lives matter, all lives matter. You know, like, uh, um, you know, make America great again or never Trump. And disagreeing with me isn't just disagreeing with me. It's being a bigot or a canceller. It's being a fascist or a Marxist. It's, you know, being a, a government-controlled coward or wanting to kill your grandma you know, whether you wear a mask or not. And so, and many churches are being fractured along the same lines as everyone else in our culture or just rallying around one tribe and having kind of this pure ideological allegiance to one uh, set of positions or another. These conflicts are poisoning families that didn't used to have conflict. They're breaking friendships that were perfectly fine in 2019. Um, and it's splitting churches and groups of churches um, I'm not very old, but I'm old enough to remember that this season that we're in isn't normal. And so the passages that we read today are warnings, and they're warnings to Christians in particular about the dangers of needless division, of unnecessary conflict. Kind of as we confess today in the Apostles' Creed, there are beliefs and there are practices and there are ways of life that separate us from others, not because we are great, but because by God's grace, he has brought us to those things. But if we take that unity that we're supposed to have, that little C Catholic church that we're a part of, and we start ripping that apart and separating ourselves from other Christians over matters that Jesus doesn't ask us to separate over, 
then we are giving into the same spirit that's infecting our world right now. And we are actually demeaning and diminishing the truth of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus. And so we're going to talk about two things today. We're going to talk about one, why needless divisions are dangerous. And we're going to talk about two, how to pursue Christian unity, even with people with whom we disagree. So first, why needless divisions are dangerous. Paul begins our Philippians passage today by quoting half of the vision statement that he gave them at the beginning of his letter. So in verse one that we read, he says, therefore, my, bro- my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So this call to stand firm echoes his words in chapter one, verse 27, which is his vision statement for the church. It goes like this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Pastor Paul, our Paul, preached last week about one kind of threat to this vision, which is the threat to stop standing firm. So it's to abandon the life of the faith and start playing a, you know, a different game. Uh, it would be like the Duke basketball team just walking off the court halfway through the game against UNC. I won't draw any explicit comparisons to yesterday's game, but, um, but failing to stand firm is a threat to the church's vision. But in the passage today, we see a different kind of threat to that vision. So let's read verses two and three again. Paul writes, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So after reminding the Philippian church to stand firm, the first half of the vision statement, Paul interrupts the vision statement, so to speak, and he turns and he begs these two women. And if the word entreat sounds too formal, it's the word beg. He says, I beg Euodia and I beg Syntyche, agree in the Lord. The literal Greek there is be of one mind, have one mind in the Lord. He calls out these two women by name. And this letter would have been written by Paul, sent to the church, and then read aloud with the whole church. Can you imagine being in the room when that happened? I I think about that. It's be uncomfortable. Um, But I want to make one quick aside before we go further. Um, If you're new here, you're investigating Christianity, uh, you might bristle at the Apostle Paul calling out two women by name like this. And I want to say two things quickly to that. First, Paul calls out specific men in lots of other places. So this isn't a gendered thing. And then second, in verse three that we just read, Paul uses very respectful, honoring language to describe these women. So he says, they've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and my fellow workers. Their names are in the book of life. So he describes these women as pillars of their church. They are core members. And so he's calling them out, not because they're, nobodies, but because their unity, because of their visible status within the church, is a really important thing. So there was a a Roman pagan writer named Celsus demeaned Christianity in its early days as a religion of women, slaves, and children, because in a sense it was, uh, because the gospel gave honor and hope to groups that were marginalized in Roman society. So just wanted to address that aside over. Um, But this is going to lead to our focus today 
when Paul asks them to agree, he gives no opinion about the substance of their disagreement. He doesn't say, Euodia, think like Syntyche. He doesn't say, Syntyche, apologize to Euodia. Um, He doesn't mention anything about that. And that means that their conflict is not over something that's primary to the gospel. Paul is all about some conflict over things that are primary to the gospel. He will call people out. And so the fact that he doesn't mention anything related to that means that this is a conflict that's over something secondary. This is an unnecessary division between these women. And the fact that Paul addresses it after calling the Philippians' attention back to this vision statement of standing firm in the gospel, striving side by side for the faith, means that this division, this disunity, is a threat to their church. And it's not just a threat, it's a threat that has to be addressed because it can be as dangerous to the church's public witness and to the souls, as we're going to see, of individual men and women as abandoning the Christian life. It's on par with that. So in fact, causing unnecessary conflict and division is, in a sense, abandoning the Christian life. So listen to what Paul writes in another one of his letters uh, to Titus. He writes this, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Warped, self-condemned. Paul gives the same command, the same kind of warning about a man who's uh, in a relationship with his father's second wife. He says, put that man out of the church until he repents. He says the same exact thing about, you know, like moral immorality or moral uh, failure. Um, that he says the same thing about unnecessary division and divisiveness. It's conditions for removing someone from the church until they repent. It's a danger to their soul. And before we go farther, there's just one quick way to apply this. Um, if you follow the news or cultural issues in whatever way, Um, You have people that you're watching or listening to or reading. And part of news analysis and cultural commentary is trying to sift, you know, kind of truth and falsehood, wisdom and folly. And that's like, at at root, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. But there's at least one commentator. He's a Christian pastor, actually, that I totally stopped reading because I finally realized at a certain point, he just picks fights. And some of the fights he picks were over issues worth addressing, but many weren't. And he would label and misrepresent and demean people who disagreed with him on matters that weren't essential to the Christian faith. And so he's stirring up division, and it's just a voice that I I didn't need in my head anymore. And so for you, if you have a voice in your life, whether it's a news intake or something else, but who regularly misrepresents, slanders, labels, and attacks others, I'm not going to say that you have to switch them off, but it's at least worth asking the question, is this a voice I really need in my head? Is this a person who's really helping me think about things in a meaningful way? If they're leading me to want to cut off from myself uh, relationships with people who, you know, as a Christian, I would you know, be required, if nothing else, I would hopefully I would want to embrace in love. That's just worth asking. Because like Paul said, people obsessed with division and dissension, they aren't living the way that Christians are supposed to live. So that's one danger of needless division. And the second danger is that needless division cuts us off from people who also belong to Jesus. Every Christian, 
regardless of race or age or background or socioeconomic status, has been reconciled to God because of one condition, that we have been joined by God's grace to one person, the fully divine and fully human Jesus Christ. That's the one way that all of us are in. Paul writes this in another letter. He writes, For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Jesus makes peace between divided people because he broke down in his body the line that originally separated God's people from others, the line between Jews and Gentiles. He made it so that all people uh, come to God through faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection, that all of us stand on that same ground and belong to God for the same exact reason, with no one in a position of power or privilege over another, no first-class or second-class citizens. At one point in his earthly ministry, Jesus says this about marriage. He says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he says that in the context of talking about divorce, that a marriage is a relationship created by God, and it should only be separated under the most extreme conditions. The same thing is true of the church, of the body of Christ. The fights that do get fought in the New Testament, the conflicts that are necessary, because there are some, they're over this. They're over teaching or behavior that leads away from Jesus instead of toward him. That engenders necessary conflict. Well, when Christians are faced with wrong teaching about who Jesus is or about uh, practices, uh, we see fellow Christians engaging in things that take them out of Jesus' kingdom, that's a ground for a necessary conflict. So things like sexual immorality, lies, envy, greed, gossip, rage, those are matters that we as Christians have to engage on. And then the other kind of necessary conflict in the New Testament is conflict when people who have been welcomed into the body of Christ by God are demeaned or excluded by other Christians. So Paul has to confront Peter, another apostle at one point, because Peter reverts to the Jewish practice of not eating with Gentiles. So a group of Judaizing Christians come. So they call themselves Christians, but they say you have to adopt the whole Jewish way of life to, be, to belong to Jesus they don't eat with Gentiles. He stops eating with Gentile Christians. And Paul calls him out in public because he is excluding someone that Christ has welcomed. And so Paul also calls out rich Christians in Corinth who were bringing these lavish meals to their gatherings. And so they get together as a church to celebrate supper together. They feast and get drunk on their own stuff and they don't share with poor Christians. And so there are poor people in the room going hungry. Paul says that is not how Christians live. That is not how we show fellowship with one another. I, many white churches in the South, and I grew up in a church in Mississippi, so I'm not saying this as an outsider or someone above it, have legacies of excluding black people from Christian fellowship, of not offering them the same hospitality and the relationship that they're offering to one another. And in some places, they're just beginning to face that legacy and repent and try to deal with that and heal that. So by the logic of the New Testament, demeaning or excluding Christians from the body of Christ for reasons other than sin 
deserves confrontation. So, but the problem Yodia and Syntyche have, which is more like a lot of the problems that we're facing today, I think, is an unnecessary conflict. It's one they don't have to divide over because it's not essential to their salvation or to the life with God. And while Paul doesn't give a specific way forward for how he wants them to get over this unnecessary conflict, we're going to look at the Romans passage that we read to address that second question. So how do we pursue unity with people we disagree with when we have these unnecessary conflicts? What do we do? So let's read the passage again. It's Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 7 and verse 19. So Paul writes, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So this was written to the church in Rome, which was composed of Christians from a Jewish background and Christians from a Gentile, Roman background. The Jews in that day would have lived in a similar way that Orthodox Jews live in New York City today. So they're citizens, they're part of kind of the commercial life of the city, but they dressed and they talked and they lived in ways that divided them visibly from the wider culture. Um, they kept the Sabbath, a special day, which is one of the things Paul mentions here, by not doing labor or commerce on Saturdays. The Romans really didn't do special days if they weren't having a feast. Many Jews also didn't eat meat in the city because most of the meat that was on sale would have been sacrificed to a Roman god. So it would have been part of an offering to a false god. And so they just wouldn't touch it because out of concern for holiness, they say, I just, I'm just going to eat vegetables so I can play it safe. And the Romans, of course, ate whatever. So when men and women from these two cultural groups come to a common faith in Jesus as the true savior and the true key to knowing and worshiping God, they're brought into a common church in a new relationship, but they're bringing some of their past convictions with them. Some of those get reset and left behind as they repent, and other ones don't. And so they're wrestling with like, what kind of unity, what kind of relationship do we have here when we have beliefs about special days or beliefs about food or values or practices that are pretty different from one another? How do we get along? What are we supposed to do? Uh, and the fact that Paul warns against despising and judging tells us that that's not just a, like, an intellectual level disagreement, that there's some relational tension within this church. And honestly, it's easy to imagine how there would be. You know, from the Jewish side, they've known the Romans for years as these self-indulgent, idol-worshiping pagans. You know, God, the father of Jesus, is also the God of the Old Testament. So even though Jesus technically said the Sabbath was made for man, not for man for Sabbath, it's a gift, not a command, you know, it still makes sense to honor that gift, right, as part of worshiping God. 
And there are Romans who don't believe in Jesus, who are outside the bounds of Christianity, who are doing and saying exactly the same thing that these Roman Christians are doing. They look a lot like them. They sound a lot like them. And then on the Roman side, you know, they know now that they're, we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. And they probably heard Paul warn against Judaizers who tried to add new boundaries to the Christian faith and say you had to become a Jew to become a Christian. Paul is very harsh. He is very adamant about saying that's outside the bounds of Christianity. And so from the Roman perspective, to have these Jews who are keeping these extra practices and being kind of judgy about it, uh, look back at them, they'd say they're halfway out the door to Judaism. What a judaization, I, that might be a word. Um, you know, it's like they're, they're, they're on a slippery slope that leads to legalism and out of the gospel. And so they could each stand, divide themselves from the other side, and say, you're basically out the door already. So this is easy conflict, easy tension to understand. And if Paul thought either of these groups were really in the wrong, were endangering their souls, he would say so. Paul is a straight shooter, but he doesn't. He gives them three commands instead. He gives them three practices for cultivating unity, living together, and avoiding needless conflict. And so we're going to close by just looking at these three principles. The first one, welcome. So verse one, for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So Paul actually thinks that the Jewish background believers, his own people, are weaker in faith for having these convictions. He says, like, these are, these, are, these are not necessary things to have. But more important, he's telling the Romans to welcome them with their convictions and to show them hospitality. That's more important than arguing with them about their Christian freedom. Paul wants these Christians showing hospitality to one another. They're in each other's homes. He wants them worshiping together in a church on a Sunday. He wants them demonstrating to one another and the world that they're united by something that's bigger than the things that might divide them, just like they divided them in the past. And I love the second half of the verse because he lays a ground rule. He says, get together, not to fight. Have them over, not for a debate, for a meal. So you, we all probably know someone like that, where an invitation to dinner is an invitation to an hour plus debate. Um, so I don't know if your hot button issues are related to race or politics or fast food or homeschooling, but if God's word has not clearly spoken on a subject, your first call is to welcome people, even if they disagree with you. The second principle, the second command is trust. Let's read verses three through five again. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul asks these Christians to trust that God is as much at work in the lives of people they disagree with as he is in their own. God has welcomed all of them. God has taken all of them as his servants in other passages, as his children. He has brought them together into Christ. 
And he has promised to uphold, to keep standing firm, all of these people, despite their different convictions. And so Paul says, let each of you submit your convictions to God. Live a life of worship. Live a life that's steeped in the word. So you are learning to ask yourself from the truths of scripture, what does God want for me? What does God ask of me? Do that, he says, become fully convinced in your own mind of biblical convictions. And if they are not outside the bounds of Christianity, what we've talked about, if they're not leading someone away from Jesus or excluding someone who belongs to him, then let other people be convinced as well and trust that they also have the Holy Spirit. I mentioned marriage earlier, which is a relationship where God has created a new unity between two people. Anyone who tells you that married people have exactly the same thoughts and values and habits does not know married people. So marriage doesn't make us uniform. It doesn't turn my wife and me into the same person. Marriage brings us a unity that still maintains some significant differences, that some of which have changed and some of which are probably never going to change. Um, being of one mind doesn't make us think exactly the same opinion about every single thing. In the same way, the church is going to be composed of people who have some different beliefs and values and habits. They're not all in bounds. And again, if someone's out of bounds, we need to have that confrontation. But probably more of them are in bounds than we tend to be comfortable with, especially because our culture is so narrow in the way it sorts people out. We need to be very careful in listening to God's word to see what is and isn't clear. And we should be quicker to trust that God might be at work in a person's life than we are to look at them with suspicion if they happen to disagree with us. And the third command, the last command, is to build. So verse 19, Paul says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Paul commands these Christians to build one another instead of tearing one another down, to make the church stronger instead of weaker. So building means worshiping together. It means studying the word together. It means praying together. It means cultivating love and service for one another. To go back to our Philippians passage, Paul wants Euodia and Syntyche of one mind, so they're building each other up instead of tearing each other down and risking tearing their church down with it. Building means caring more about the other person's good than about my opinions. Does this mean allowing false beliefs or sin? No. We confront those things, and we don't have time for a sermon on those things, but that could be its own topic. But our default, our first instinct, should be to move toward other Christians and build up instead of tear down. Our ultimate model for this is Jesus, who gave his own life to create the church and to build us up into heaven itself. He gave up everything his eternal status, his privilege, his preferences, his relationship with the Father, so that we could come to know him. The meal that we're celebrating this morning, communion, is the celebration of how far he went to uh, make that. Because he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. His body was broken to uh, forgive us of our sins and to earn forgiveness for of us to create a new body. And he also took a cup and he poured it. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
that was poured out for you. And so he gave his own blood to create a new covenant, a new relationship that we have with God the Father. And so when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the unity that God was willing to sacrifice for to create in us. And we celebrate that as sinners who are utterly in need of his grace. And so we're going to pray together, and then we'll take these elements of communion together. So pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, you gave your body to make a body. You gave your life so that we could be reconciled to you and reconciled to one another. And there are dimensions of that. There are uh, dimensions of that unity that are difficult. We have different convictions about some things. We have different practices. We have plenty of challenges and conflict. And so I just pray for myself and I pray for us as a church, the humility to accept that I am the biggest sinner I know. And that um, if it wasn't for Christ, I wouldn't know anything worthwhile. I wouldn't have anything worthwhile. I wouldn't be anything worthwhile. And I pray that we would have the wisdom to know when we need to have uh, conflict or discussion or confrontation over a necessary matter. And when we need to practice hospitality and welcome someone whom you have welcomed to yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the way that we're taking communion in COVID Tide is you just have one of these little packet things. There's sort of a thin film on top. You peel off, and here is the the bread. So uh, Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body. And he also said, take and drink. This is my blood. All right, we're going to close today by singing one more song.